Your steadfast love extends to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountain of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast you save, O Lord. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the, tr- from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of light. In your light do we see light. This is verses 5 through 9 of Psalm 36, which along with Psalm 39 are the psalms appointed for today, Tuesday, August the 30th, 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Today happens to be mine and Suzanne's anniversary. We were married 37 years ago today. So we're celebrating an important milestone in our lives. We're always um, grateful for God's goodness again in, in keeping us together all these years. Um, you know, we've gone through a bunch of trials in our lives, and and it, on, on this side of it, I'm so grateful and thankful for her and thankful for our marriage that's lasted all this time. And so it, it's, it's always an exciting day for us uh, to celebrate God's goodness uh, in giving us one another to walk this path together that we've not been alone. And we don't take that for granted. At least I don't think we do. <laughs> so anyway, so happy anniversary <laughs> to my wife. So today we're going to continue looking at Acts, or, or at the, sorry, the book of Job will be in Acts as well, but we're in the book of Job. We're still looking at Job's answer to Bildad, who was the second friend who spoke, and that we're in chapter 12, verse 1, this to set the stage that it's Job speaking, and then jumping forward into chapter 13, verses 3 to 17, and then 21 to 27. In the Gospel according to John, we're still in chapter 8, verses 33 to 47, and then in the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 12, 1 to 17. So remember what, what I was talking about yesterday had to do with presuppositions. So what is it we bring to the table that prevents us from fully understanding and accepting the truth of the gospel? What is it that keeps us locked up in old ways of thinking about things that happen to us in life? And for me, it begins with the goodness of God. It begins with recognizing not only is he great, he is also good. And and that's been the important theme the Lord has pumped into me over the last 18 months. And it's, it's, it's that recognition and the affirmation that God is good and that I'm his child, and therefore he only gives good gifts to his children, because that's exactly what Jesus said. So in that, it's a transformation in the way that I think about everything that happens in my life. So it, it, it be, I'm not perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but I'm improving. I'm better than I was 18 months ago at celebrating the goodness of God, no matter what's going on in my life. And so here, Job, in these speeches, tends to focus completely on the greatness of God. And he understands the sovereignty of God and the power and the majesty of God. What he doesn't seem to to believe anymore is the goodness of God. And when your God is sort of one-for-one correspondence between you doing, quote, good things or avoiding bad things— and his blessing on you, then you don't see God as good. You see it as some sort of a trade-off here that if I do the right things, then God will do the right things. And that's not the case. That's not the way that life is. It's been Job's experience, but it's not the truth. So here, listen to what Job has to say and see. You can see in this that, that he is, he's all about God's greatness, and doesn't seem to truly believe God is good, that, that, that he gives us unmerited favor, that he is gracious and merciful 
to us. So he said, I would speak to the Almighty, and I desire to argue my case with God. As for you, you whitewash with lies, worthless physicians are you all. You know, it's, not, it's not any good to talk to you idiots, because you all don't have any sense of what the truth is. I'd, I'd like to present my case directly before God. You're not speaking with godly wisdom. Oh, that you would keep silent, and that would be your wisdom. In other words, you know, don't better be thought a fool than to open your mouth and remove all doubt. And that's exactly what Job's saying about it. Hey, if you just kept your mouth shut, I would have thought maybe you had something to say. Hear now my argument, and listen to the pleading of my lips. Will you speak falsely for God and speak deceitfully for Him? I mean, you don't have any idea what you're talking about, even though they have the same basic theology Job does, which is that that whole karma kind of thing. You know, if you do good, then good will happen. If you do bad, then bad will happen. And Job's saying, I didn't sin, therefore bad things shouldn't happen. They're saying, you must have sinned or this wouldn't have happened to you. He said, will you speak falsely for God and speak deceitfully for him? Will you show partiality toward him? Yeah, I will. (laughs) I will show partiality towards God. And that's Job's thing is, is to say, hey, I have a better case. It's because your theology is bad, Job. That's the reason you think you have a better case. He said, will you plead the case for God? Will it be? And they're, they're not pleading it correctly. That's the problem. They're not pleading God's case correctly either. They're not pointing Job in the right direction. They're not pointing Job to the goodness of God. They're pointing Job to his own sin and saying that God's a righteous God. In other words, you know, the righteousness demands perfection. And then perfection should mean that everything goes well for you. Well, the only perfect man who ever lived died on a cross. <laughs> so he's saying, will you plead the case for God? Will it be well with you when he searches you out? Or can you deceive him as one deceives a man? He will surely rebuke you if in secret you show no partiality. We're never supposed to show partiality in judgment of, of, of other people. But we always need to show partiality towards God. But it needs to be honest partiality. It needs to be based in something more than God's greatness and his righteousness. There needs to be more than that. And we need to point people in that direction of God's goodness, even in times of suffering. He said, he will surely rebuke you if in secret you show partiality. Will not his majesty terrify you and the dread of him fall on you? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, but it's not the end of wisdom. Your maxims are proverbs of ashes. Your defenses are defenses of clay. In other words, they don't hold up under scrutiny. Let me have silence and I'll speak. You know, shut up and let me talk and let me come in, let come on me what may. I'm willing to take my chances in pleading my case before God. Why should I take my flesh and my teeth and put my life in my hand? Though he slay me, I will hope in him, yet I will argue my ways to his face. I don't deserve this. I I do believe in him and I worship him even though he slay me. This will be my salvation that the godless shall not come before him. In other words, there's so much righteousness there that that the godless sinners shall not come before him. Me, however, I will. Keep listening to my words and let my declaration be in your ears. Withdraw your hand. He's pleading with God. Withdraw your hand far from me and let not dread of you terrify me. Then call and I will answer or let me speak and you reply to me. How many are my iniquities and my sins? That's a question. How many are they? I don't believe there are any, is his plan and his argument. Make me know my transgression and my sin. If there's something I've done that I don't know about that's brought this on me, please show it to me so that I can repent of it and I can turn away from it. 
Again, this is the proof that what Job believes is there's a one-to-one correspondence between our actions and the blessing or curses that, that we think are coming into our lives. And so it, sin merits bad stuff. Righteousness merits good stuff. And that's a God of justice to give me good stuff if I'm good and to give me bad stuff if I'm bad. But I can amend it and things will work themselves out. That's not how the world works. That's not the story of Genesis 1, 2, and 3. So he says, why do you hide your face and count me as your enemy? Will you frighten a driven leaf and pursue dry chaff? I've certainly felt this in my life. Because I I had a wrong understanding of God that he had to correct. And sometimes the way he corrects it is to allow you to stay in this place a while. To stay in this place of bitterness. Because the bitterness is, is based in wrong belief. Wrong belief about the world and wrong belief about him. And as long as we're in this place of bitterness towards God, then, then we might have to stay there a little while before we can begin to question that idea. And so that's what he's doing here. For you write bitter things against me and make me inherit the iniquities of my youth. That's what it must be, right? It's the stuff I did when I was a kid. It's the stuff I did when I was young and dumb. And now I'm paying the price for all that stuff. So that's what this is. It's not anything I've done in the last couple of years. It's the stuff I did when I was young and dumb. You put my feet in the stocks and watch all my paths. You set a limit for the soles of my feet. In other words, I can't go anywhere. You have me hemmed in on every side. And and we can have that attitude about God. We can easily have that attitude about him. We need to know his goodness and that he suffers when we suffer, that, that, that our suffering matters to him. But there's something more important than our suffering in this that we see him rightly, because we need to see him rightly to proclaim him rightly. In the gospel today, Jesus is continuing to speak to this group of people, who some of whom have come to believe in him, but others are still arguing with him. They answered him, we're offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. Well, that's one of the dumbest statements you'll ever hear in your life. Can you say, well, Egypt? I mean, they have definitely been slaves and enslaved by other people. How is it that you say you will become free? In other words, we don't need to become free. We are free. We've always been free. Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. Slaves get traded. They get sold. They get bought. They get sent from place to place. So if the son sets you free, you'll be free indeed because he has the power and the authority to do so. But he must also be good. If he's setting slaves free, clearly he comes for good purpose. I know that you're offspring of Abraham. This is an interesting way of saying what he says here. There's, there's things that, that he's going to say here in the next little bit. He, he uses particularly different words. I know that you're the seed of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. You might have been born from Abraham, sort of like Ishmael, not Isaac. You might be offspring of Abraham, but you're not Abraham's children because you don't bear that familial resemblance. You're not inheriting the kingdom because you don't believe. And this is a strong word when he says this. I know that you're offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I know who you're 
you know, earthly father is. I know that you trace your lineage back to him, but that doesn't make you children of Abraham. I speak of what I've seen with my father, and you do what you've heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, not his offspring, if you were his children, you'd be doing the works Abraham did. But you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I've heard from God. That's not what Abraham did. You're doing the works your father did. So you might, it might look like Abraham is your father in an earthly sense. And essentially what he's saying is, but you're not the children of the promise. You're not acting like him. You're more like an Ishmael than you are an Isaac. And when he says this, you're doing the works your father did, obviously he's pointing away from Abraham as their father. Because this is not what Abraham did. You're doing the works your father did. They said to him, we're not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. The, the, the presumption here, when they say we're not born of sexual immorality, what they're actually suggesting is, is that you might have been, but we're not. We've heard stories about you. We've heard that cock and bull story about the uh, that the Holy Spirit was your father, more likely to be a Roman soldier, eh? So that's exactly what they were trying to insinuate there. We have one father, even God. Oh, we're reaching a little higher now. Abraham was their father a minute ago, and now it's God. And Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God, and I'm here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. I didn't just choose to come here. No, the Father sent me. I'm his emissary on this earth. Why do you not understand what I say? It's beginning to sound more and more like the conversation with Nicodemus, that that he didn't understand what Jesus was saying. And here Jesus is saying, why don't y'all understand me? It's because you can't bear to hear my word. You can't stand the truth. You are of your father, the devil. I mean, he couldn't be any clearer, could he? I mean, they've claimed Abraham and they've claimed God. And he says, no, 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 neither of those is true. Not your father. You might be his offspring, but he's not your father. And the proof is, is that you're nothing like him. You're of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. Uh Uh-oh, disappointing to the cross. You're going to murder me. And does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks of his own native tongue and his own character, for he's a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you don't believe me. You're so accustomed to the lie, the presumption you bring to the table is a lie. And because you're so devoted to the lie, you won't hear the truth and you won't accept the truth. Because I tell you the truth, you don't believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? Show me the sin. If I tell you the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God, hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you're not of God. In other words, you haven't been born again. You haven't been born of water in the Spirit. You're still walking in the flesh, and you're still walking and thinking with a heart of stone. You're not, it's not penetrating because you're committed to this untruth that's at the heart of what you believe. And I'm trying to tell you the truth, but you're not able to receive it because you're too committed to the lie. And, and that's important. It's always important for us to examine our presuppositions and say, what, what's the lie at the heart of the way I feel today? What's a lie at the heart of my failure to grasp the love of God? 
in all situations. What is the lie that sits at the root of that? Where is it that I have this enmity towards God that I don't believe in his goodness? In the Acts passage today, about that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. When he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. So, so he wanted to curry favor with the Jews, and, and he, he found that, oh, hey, when I arrested and killed James, John's brother, who was one of the top three disciples in the time of Jesus, obviously he was a leader in the new, newly formed church as well, he, he, it, it made the Jews happy, and so he said, well, let's get another one too. Let's take the top guy out. He arrested Peter also, and that was during the days of unleavened bread, so it's around the time of the Passover. So we're, we're talking about, you know, the season that Jesus was crucified in. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending that after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made by, for, to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. So he's got guards there that he's bound with and then there's others sitting at the door and behold an angel of the lord stood next to him and a light shone in a cell (laughs) this is funny to me he struck peter on the side and woke him saying get up quickly oh hello and the chains fell off his hands so he's no longer bound he's set free and the angel said to him dress yourself and put on your sandals and he did so And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He didn't know what was being done by the angel was real, but thought that he was seeing a vision. This can't be real, right? I mean, Peter's presupposition is is that this this can't be possibly true. And we're going to see that nobody believes it's true. In the same way, they didn't believe the resurrection was true (laughs) initially. They had to be convinced of these things. And so because people believed in the resurrection, they just didn't believe it happened today. And they didn't believe it would happen in this way. They believed in Jesus right up to the point of his crucifixion, and then they denied the reality of, that he had predicted, prophesied, whatever word you want to use there, that had told them, this is what's going to happen. Three days later, I'm going to raise from the dead. But nobody believed it when they heard it. Nobody came to the conclusion, oh, resurrection must have happened, in spite of the fact that Jesus, well, promised that it was going to. So nobody believed that, and here, Peter can't even believe this is real, what's happening to him, in spite of the fact that it's happened to Peter before. <laughs> Because he and John had been set free from prison as well, remember. Now here we get we get this situation where Peter goes out, and even when he's out of the prison, he still can't believe this is true because it can't be. There are too many things arrayed against it to be true. So it must be a dream that I'm having here, some sort of a vision. And so <clears throat> when they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city, out of the prison, into the city. It opened to them of its own accord. So they didn't do anything. The door just opened. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. So he's gone. And Peter now, and when, when he came to himself, he said, Now I'm sure the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. So it's no longer a dream because the angel's not there. This has to be real now. Holy moly, who would have ever thought this? Who expected this? Well, nobody is what he's saying. <clears throat> when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. It's his nephew. So Mary is his sister. And so John Mark, we, we believe, is the Mark who wrote the gospel. 
And so he was Peter's guy. And so he's telling Peter's story. He appears in his own gospel as a young man who was there at the time of the trial and who ran away. And when he did, somebody grabbed him by the uh, cloak and pulled it off of him and he ran away naked. So this is that John Mark. So he, he, Mark would have been well known to the community, but, but he's also letting us know, no, no, I'm not talking about John the disciple. This is a different John that I'm speaking about, where many were gathered together and they were praying. When he knocked on the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. And remember, earlier in Luke's gospel, we see that people disbelieved for joy. It's too good to be true. Here, Rhoda has so much joy in hearing Peter's voice and seeing him at the gate, she goes to tell the other people without bringing him in. Her joy is so great, she can't contain it. She's got to share it with somebody right away and leaves Peter standing there. This is, this is too good to be true. So they come in, and he, she tells them this, and they said to her, you're out of your mind. I mean, nobody believed it. They were praying for Peter. They were praying for that, that this would change, the situation would change, that he wouldn't be handed over to the Jews. And, and yet nobody seems to believe that prayer mattered and that God answered in this extraordinary way. You know, they were hoping for an acquittal or something like that. They were not hoping even that, that God would release him from prison. This was beyond hope. That this would happen, and yet it is exactly what happened. And so when they're told this would happen, they don't believe it. But she kept insisting it was so, and they kept saying it's his angel. No, it's just a figment of your imagination. This is Peter's angel who has come to us to speak with us. But nobody goes to the door. I mean, how crazy is this? If you believe it's Peter's angel, wouldn't you run to this door and find out, hey, what can we do? What's going on here? What do you got to tell us? But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. It's not his angel, it's him. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Sounds very much like Jesus' resurrection, to be honest with you, because he's wishing them peace. And he said, now go tell them. Go tell the disciples. Then he departed and went to another place. It does. It sounds a lot like the resurrection appearances of Jesus because Peter just suddenly appears. Nobody believes that it's him because they can't believe that, that, that he could have been released from prison in this way, and so they're not prepared to meet with him. And he says, you've got to go tell everybody now. And then he disappears and goes somewhere else. So you, you see these things, and, and what is our presupposition? Is our presupposition that God can do all things, or is it not? Do we believe in his healing? But mostly, again, do we believe in his goodness? Do we believe he truly loves us? Or are we stuck at that place of the fear of the Lord? We need to move past that. We need to move past that. We need to be able to to say to ourselves that he's good. And whatever he does is good. And then what we have to do is relinquish that word and give it to him. And believe that because he did it or he allows it, then it's good in some way for us, and then say, Lord, show me how it's good.